the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Captain Terry Stoney Burke, CD, Infantry Officer in the Royal Canadian Regiment. We came around this corner at the edge of a village, and there were two men standing in the middle of the road with AK-47s. They had us empty our pockets, and they took our money, and they took our jewelry. We were told to make sure you have at least 5 to $10 in your pocket, and so you have money to give them as opposed to nothing at all. But it's not very nice to have an AK-47 stuck in your face. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. We haven't had a chance to look at some feedback on the show for a while. What I'm looking at right now is the feedback on iTunes. And remember, when you leave feedback on iTunes, that just helps other people find the show. So if you have a moment, please take some time and give me some feedback on iTunes and help other listeners find the show. So I haven't had a chance to look at the feedback for quite some time. So the first piece of feedback comes from an iTunes user known as JS, JS, JJS, JND, JJS, JN, and that feedback was left on the 20th of June, 2016. We'll just call him Jay. Jay leaves a very short message saying, a great and much needed resource. Thank you very much, Jay, for your feedback, short and to the point. A little bit longer feedback was left by Vilmoz, V-I-L-M-O-S-Z, and that was on the 23rd of May, 2016. Vilmoz says, the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. To me, those opening words are as iconic as any of my favorite regular radio shows. 52 whole episodes, and you haven't produced a single boring one. Each one has made me smile, made me think, and taught me something. This podcast has kept me company on long car rides, timed my runs, and made dragging work days go faster. As I wait for news from the Royal Military College, the podcast keeps me inspired and committed to self-improvement. It helps my eyes stay fixed on the prize, as it were. Captain Lacroix, you are doing Canada a great service with this podcast. I look forward to many more episodes, and maybe even someday one of my own. Also, your radio voice is excellent. Well, flattery gets your feedback read on the air. Thank you very much, Vilmaz. I wish you all the best at Royal Military College. Hopefully you have lots of good experiences, and absolutely, once you have some experiences that are worth recording and preserving, please reach out to me, and I would be very happy to preserve your story. Once again, if you would like to leave me feedback on iTunes, all you have to do is log on to iTunes, find the show using the search function, and then on there it says ratings and reviews. Go ahead and leave a rating and review, and all that does is help other people find the show. Since we're talking about May 2016, I thought I would update you on a little bit of news. So in May of 2016, I was very lucky to have an article published in the Blue Line magazine. Now, Blue Line magazine is a national periodical for law enforcement, for police. Now, I recognize that this is a military history podcast and not a police podcast, but bear with me for a second. So this article was written for a police audience. And the article is entitled Veterans in Crisis. Once again, it's in the May 2016 edition of Blue Line Magazine. You can still find it lying around a police station. I'm sure they're using it to level a table or something. Now, what the article is based on is focusing on military members in distress and how to help them out. And I go through the different strategies that are available for police officers to call upon in order to help a military member in crisis. So this article was published and it had national reach. 
across the country to every police station from coast to coast to coast, as they say. One of the things that I would like to touch on, since it is applicable to this episode, is resources for homeless veterans. Two of the examples that I call upon are noted in the article. The first one is an organization called Veterans Emergency Transition Services, and the acronym is VETS. VETS Canada is a volunteer-led, apolitical, non-profit corporation, and it's based in Nova Scotia. They provide aid and comfort to Canadian veterans in crisis and those that are at risk of becoming homeless, as well as those that are already homeless. VETS Canada has a 1-800 number. It's 1-888-228-3871. And if you happen to discover a Canadian veteran who is homeless or about to become homeless, you can call VETS Canada at their 1-800 number, and they will provide you with resources to help get a roof over that veteran's head and any help and any support. Veterans Affairs Canada also has a program that is geared towards helping a veteran in crisis. Now their number for English service is 1-866-522-2122 or French service is 1-866-522-2022 and that's a 24-hour helpline that provides veterans and their families with short-term professional counseling and referral services including support for mental and emotional health concerns. Now I know that at least in the city of Toronto and hopefully nationwide, these people are dedicated to not only getting resources to a veteran in crisis, but they can take a veteran with empty pockets living on the streets to the point where their ID is restored, they're working, they have income, they have a roof over their head, and they're living independently and without worry of the burden of substance abuse. I know that in Toronto, we have the Good Shepherd Ministries, which is paired up with Veterans Affairs, and I would call them nothing short of miracle workers, to be able to take somebody who has lost everything to completely restoring their lives to the point where they're functioning and able to care for themselves once again. These two points will become apparent during the opening part of the episode. You'll see why I'm calling some attention to the concerns of homeless veterans, because my guest today, Captain Terry Burke, known as Stoney, started out his life prior to being in the Canadian Forces as a homeless person. And he'll get into detail about that during the interview. His period of service includes much of the Cold War, service in Germany, service in Cyprus, as well as domestically in Quebec during the FLQ crisis. During this episode, he speaks specifically about his time as a military observer in Israel, Syria, and Lebanon. And I will let him describe the majority of that, but suffice it to say, in the show notes, I have included a bio of one of the people from his team. Once you listen to the episode, it'll make sense why I've included the bio of one of the people on his team. Please have a look in the show notes at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca for the biography of the colonel that influenced Terry Burke. Here's my episode with Captain Terry Burke, also known as Stoney. Captain Burke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. Now, Terry, you and I have never met, but I was introduced to you by a mutual acquaintance, Chris Jezovnik of the Tilsonburg Military History Club on Facebook. Yeah, Chris and I are acquainted through his military historical club in Tilsonburg. He invited me down there to speak as a speaker last year and to talk on some of the books I've written about the military. 
It's a very interesting place because it's set up in actually what is a converted railroad station. Oh, wow. It's been converted into this very interesting and large building that now houses a couple of historical societies within Tilsonburg. Well, I think a railroad station is very fitting for a historical gathering place. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure the railroad enthusiasts would be very happy to participate there as well. They certainly would, yeah. So, Terry, since we don't have any prior experience together, we can't reminisce. So what I'll do is I'll direct you to the first question, which is why did you join the Canadian Armed Forces? And I guess it wouldn't have been called the Canadian Armed Forces when you joined. Perhaps you would have joined simply the Canadian Army at the time. Exactly, yes. Of course, in those days, 1964, it was three separate services. And I joined the Army in 1964, mainly because I was a kind of loose ends, living more or less on the street. Wow. And my older brother had been in the Army and had talked it up to me. And, and I thought that would be the best way to try and get my life back together. So I joined in 1964 in Toronto. Oh, excellent. So when you joined, where did you go for your basic training? We were indoctrinated in through Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto and then sent to London, Ontario, where I live now, to the Royal Canadian Regimental Depot. Right. And that's where I did my basic training for six months. I see. So Wosley Barracks would be a very familiar place to you. Exactly, yes. So what was the world like when you joined in 1964? Well, it was actually, it was quite a a dangerous place to live, at least it seemed so at the time. If you think about it, 1964 was about the height of the Cold War. Right. The Cuban Missile Crisis had just occurred. The Bay of Pigs in Cuba, of course. The Soviets had just closed the East German border and the Berlin Wall was going up in 1964. All in all, the world was a fairly dangerous place. Right. Yes, I was fortunate enough to be at the end of that. So I got to see the Iron Curtain before it came down. Now, what were you like when you joined? You already started describing what you were like when you joined. You were not very productive in your life. You were living on the streets. But what was that transition like going from living on the streets to having three meals a day in a bed and having a structured life suddenly thrust on you? At first, it was a, it was a difficult transition because, of course, I was used to doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And, of course, in 1964, the Army was a little different than it is today. It's much more structured, much more disciplined. Not that it isn't good today. It's just that in those days, it was kind of a throwback to the Second World War in Korea. And some of the senior NCOs and officers we had had actually served in both wars. Right. So therefore, they had a specific way of doing things, and uh, you better adjust, and you better adjust quickly. And how was that for you? It wasn't too bad. So I was used to general hardship. I mean, I was born in Ireland and came to Canada in 57. I was raised in Cabbage Town, which was a very rough neighborhood in Toronto, and still is. So basically, I was living on the street for a few months, and then finally waiting until I was 17, and I could actually join. So it was uh, nice to have a bed and three meals, as you say. Right. But it wasn't too big a transition as far as structure's concerned because I was used to a structured upbringing. I had nine brothers and sisters. So, wow. So we all had certain things to do, and a certain way my parents taught us to act, and we acted that way, and the military was almost like an extension of it. Now, you had brought up your brother's service, so can you give a brief outline of his period of service? He was in the militia in Toronto, the Irish Regiment of Canada, right? and then he joined the regular force. He was in what they called at the time the service corps, which would be logistics corps now, Yes. and he was a driver. He loved the Army, but unfortunately, my mother was killed in 1962, and he, he was only three years in the service, and he, had a, he was given a compassionate release so he could come home and get a job to help support the family. Wow. So which trade did you join? Your brother joined as a driver. What did you choose to do? I joined the Royal Canadian Regiment as an infantryman. Oh, there you go. So not as an infantry officer. You joined as an infantryman. Yes. Yeah. 
I was a private soldier. What was your pathway to commissioning then from private soldier? Basically, it was a long pathway. Because I was living on the street, of course, I wasn't going to school. So when I joined, I had a grade 8 education. So I spent the next 25 years going back to high school and doing it the old-fashioned way. That's actually sitting in a classroom. Right. And I finally finished grade 13 in 1982, and I've managed to achieve a, what they call an Ontario Scholars Award for good grades. Right. And my company, 2IC, I was a warrant officer at the time, came to me and, and suggested I might want to try commissioning from the ranks, which I did, and they accepted me. As a lieutenant? As a lieutenant for a year and then promoted to captain. Oh, excellent. I have just done that transition myself a little bit over a year ago, but from the rank of chief warrant officer. Okay. I know where you're coming from. So let's move on to the next question, Terry. What was your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? I think probably my most memorable experience was serving with UNSOL, the United Nations True Supervisory Organization in the Middle East. I had done a total of six tours with them through to the 1980s and 1990s. And my basic job was to patrol, do vehicle patrols in South Lebanon. And I was the operations officer for the station in South Lebanon. So in our job, pretty much entailed delivering food and medicines to villages that have been cut off by the fighting between the Israelis and the Lebanese army right. and more or less taking the Red Cross to and from villages that have been cut off and reporting on fire within the area, any tank movement, things like that. Are there any interesting anecdotes that you can remember from that period? Probably the most interesting thing that happened to me the first month I was there is we were unarmed. We were completely unarmed as the UN force. And as we were doing our, what they called the training tour through South Lebanon, we came around this corner at the edge of a village, and there were two men standing in the middle of the road with AK-47s. And they had us get out of the vehicle and empty our pockets, and they took our money, and they took our jewelry, wow. and they left. And later, we were been pre-warned that this is not political. They're not doing this because of who you are or what you represent. They're doing it because the economy has collapsed, and they're simply robbing you. So <laughs> we were told, make sure you have at least 5 to $10 in your pocket, and you don't wear anything like crosses or anything religious symbols. Right. And so you have money to give them as opposed to nothing at all, because that just makes them upset, of course. So. Right. But it's not, as you can well imagine, not very nice to have an AK-47 stuck in your face. No, of course not. And everyone came out of that okay, I suppose. They did, yes. It was. It happened a number of times, actually. It got to the point where it was almost laughable. People used to laugh about it because it happened so frequently. Well, let's move on to the next question then, Terry. Who is your greatest influence, or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? Certainly the most memorable person I can ever remember was in South Lebanon again. Uh, the station's chief, as they call him, the commanding officer of the station, was a Marine lieutenant colonel by the name of Rich Higgins. I was his operations officer, and he ran the station. Now, at the time, this would have been the early part of 1988. There were 19 different nationalities in South Lebanon, but only Americans were not allowed to go beyond what they call the Israeli-controlled area, which is about within five kilometers of the Israeli border. He, of course, being the, a U.S. Marine, wasn't allowed to travel into the area proper, but every day he had to send patrols out to those same areas. And every day him and I would argue about why he couldn't go. <laughs> and finally he said there was a meeting slated for the city of Tyr, which is about 10 kilometers inside of Lebanon from the border. And on the way back from that meeting, he was abducted by Hezbollah and taken to Beirut. And that was about six months we saw 
pictures on and off in the paper. He was being used for propaganda. And then in July of 1989, there was a picture in the paper where he'd been hung by Hezbollah. Oh, my God. It's terrible. Yeah. And I used to always remember him and I used to argue, as I said, not argue, well, as much as you can argue with a lieutenant colonel. Right. But basically, I used to tell him that you shouldn't be doing these things. And his answer, of course, was, how can I order people to do and go into places that are dangerous when I, in fact, won't do it myself? Right. That was his logic. And unfortunately, it was his undoing. Yes, absolutely. He paid for his stand with his life. That's frightening. Are there any other memorable characters that you can recall that perhaps have a more cheerful story to them? Probably my first section commander. My specialty in the infantry was explosives. Oh, wow. And I had a very hard-nosed master corporal by the name of Reggie Everest, and he gave me nothing but a hard time for months and months on end. Everything I did, everything I said was criticized. Every time he gave a lecture, he would pick on me to give the answers, and I always have to be on my toes. And that went on for months and months and months until finally the course ended and I, I came in first. And he told me, you see, what happens if you pay attention and I keep on your case? And him and I became great friends after that. Even after he retired, he was a commissioner in London on the front gate. Right. And he was already retired for five years. I'd be coming into work. He'd stop me and ask me what I was doing. I'd tell him I was giving a lecture on explosives. He'd say, let me see your lesson plan. <laughs> so he was, uh, he was a big influence on me and making me work a lot harder than I was willing to at first. Definitely a much more cheerful, upbeat story than the first, yes. but nevertheless, both I could see how they could both be very influential to you as both an instructor and as a leader. Excellent influences, excellent stories. So Terry, we've come to the final question. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? And I can't imagine something more challenging than having your seal abducted and murdered. It was. It was, uh, it was a very difficult time, as you can well imagine. Now, what I didn't mention was that about a month before he was abducted, the training officer, the man who actually worked for me as the operations officer, was killed by a roadside bomb wow. in South Lebanon. So Higgins was trying to keep the station together. And when he got abducted and later killed, the station almost fell apart. Right. It was, it was very difficult for people to concentrate, and people were in fear of their lives, of going out into the area. So it took a lot of doing to keep people together and keep people focused on what the job was supposed to be. There was even a thought at one point of arming us. But of course, the UNSO, the United Nations Truth Supervisory Organization, had never been armed since 1948 when they came into being. So that was quashed. So, But it was still, it, was, it felt very unnerving sometimes to be out in the area without any hope of being picked up, being safe and completely unarmed, of course. So, right. I was there for six months after Colonel Higgins was abducted. And at the end of the six months, they finally brought in another Australian lieutenant colonel who managed to get the station back together and get people focused on their jobs. What were some of the leadership strategies that you employed to keep people focused in such a difficult moment? Well, it was difficult because everybody in the station was either a, with the exception of the commanding officer, of course, everybody was either a captain or a major. Right. So it was wasn't like you were dealing with soldiers and they had used to being having a certain amount of autonomy and a certain style of doing what they're supposed to do and of course when you're talking about 19 different nationalities you have 19 different philosophies on <laughs> on leadership but as the operations officer it was my job to try and keep people doing what they're supposed to do even in some cases telling majors uh, I was a captain at the time 
right. telling majors what to do because over there, rank doesn't mean anything. Time in country was what counted. So the only one who was called sir was the commanding officer. Everybody else was on a first name basis. So it was difficult. What I used to try and do is every Saturday, without fail, I would go from the western edge of Lebanon at the Mediterranean all the way up to the Syrian border on the road just inside the Israeli control zone and visit all the observation posts. There was two people on every outpost and I try to get to see them and talk to them and just sit down with a coffee just to know that there was somebody there. Right. Because they were stuck and locked inside for seven days. Wow. So that's what I tried to do. I, I think it was appreciated simply because they knew that there was somebody out there thinking about them all the time. Certainly. So Terry, we've come to the end of the four questions. What are you doing to keep yourself busy at this time? I hear you've written a book or more than one book. Yes, since I retired seven years ago, I've written three books. My first book was called Cold War Soldier, and it's about my experiences in Germany. And it was published by John Durham Publishing in Toronto. And also, about two years after that, I wrote a second book called Under the Blue Beret, which talks about my experiences in Cyprus and in the Middle East. Right. And it, again, was published by Dundurn. Both of them are available in e-books and hard copy on Amazon. Right. And currently, I'm waiting for my publishing company to get back to me on a third book I'm writing called Cabbage Town, which is, of course, talks about my upbringing in Toronto in the 1950s. Excellent. Hopefully, the listeners can use my Amazon link found at www.CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.com podcast.ca and order your book. Yeah. If they look up my name, Terry Burke, but also on the cover because I was known in the military as Stony Burke. Okay. The cover says the author is Terry Stony Burke. There we go. So hopefully the listeners will pick up your book through my Amazon link and enjoy reading about your experiences if they want to hear more about your story. Thank you. So Terry, we've come to the end of the show. What I'd like to do is give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. As I say, it's not often I get a chance to think back on all the things that have happened to me in 43 years of military service, but it was difficult when I first retired because you have, I think like most people, you go from 50 miles an hour to zero in about two days, and then you suddenly have to find something else to do with your life. But <laughs> I'll never regret the 43 years I spent as a member of the Royal Canadian Regiment. Well, I've had the pleasure to serve with the Royal Canadian Regiment on many occasions, and I've never come away with anything but being impressed by the good people that work there and wear that badge. Some of the best people in the world are right there in that regiment. Terry, I'd like to thank you for taking an opportunity to be a guest on the show. And although we haven't met, I do have a promise of a guided tour of Wosley Barracks, the Royal Canadian Regiment Museum, the next time I'm in London. And hopefully that might be an opportunity for you and I to meet as well. That would be great, Mike. I'd enjoy that, certainly. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. 
All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.